Hello. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. I'm David Osman, and with me again today is Peter Warburton of Economic Perspectives. Our subject for this podcast is the UK cost of credit crisis. The Independent Research Forum promotes an extensive range of the best independent research and alternative data providers, both macro and micro. Many are global, some are country-specific, some sector-specific, some stock-pickers, and all are investment-related. The UK economy is facing several severe challenges, not least Brexit, the COVID pandemic, the cost-of-living crisis, and Russia's outrageous war on Ukraine. As a result, UK economic policy is walking a tightrope and the economy is in danger of falling into a stagflationary recession. To discuss these issues and more, I'm very pleased that we are joined once more by Peter Warburton, who is the founder of Economic Perspectives and their chief economist. Peter has a long and distinguished career as a top-tier economist in the financial sector, previously working for leading firms including Robert Fleming and Lehman Brothers. He has been a member of the IEA's Shadow Monetary Policy Committee since its inception in 1997. In addition, Peter is Managing Director of Halkin Services, a global risk analysis and asset allocation service. Peter is also the author of the book Debt and Delusion, Central Bank Follies That Threaten Economic Disaster, which forewarned about the risk of a global financial crisis and still has much relevance in the current decade. Founded in 1996, Economic Perspectives is an independent global macro-financial research company that challenges conventional thinking and provides valuable investment insights for professional investors. Peter, welcome back. Let's begin with a short introduction to the service that Economic Perspectives provides to your clients. Well, thank you, David. Yes, the the service is now really a personal consultancy and it revolves around a quarterly presentation. So so every quarter I I put together what I think is the most significant theme for the coming months and I build a presentation around that. The work really has two strands, still the inflation strand and the, the credit strand. So basically what I'm trying to do is to weave together these narratives to try and cast some light really on the macro financial outlook and frequently I find myself in disagreement with the consensus. We also do some observational publications, the global inflation heat maps and the global GDP heat maps. Uh, we just try to keep us honest about what's happening in the world. Is the UK cost of living crisis being compounded by a rising cost of credit crisis as credit pricing starts to reflect a deteriorating economic outlook? Well, sadly, yes, I think it is. I think inflation gets top billing and deservedly so at the moment. But there's an important credit story to tell as well. For the past 25 years, we've been arguing and supported by empirical evidence that it is credit that makes the world go round rather than money. And so the the three key dimensions of credit are the quantum, that is the, the addition to growth to debt that's taking place, the 
changing slope of the yield curve and the direction of credit spreads, so typically corporate to government credit spreads. So if you, if you have those three pieces of information, uh, I would argue that you are well on the way to, to making a sound forecast of the global economy and indeed for an individual economy as well. So I think the, the place to start really is that we have uh, post-global financial crisis, we've seen in increasingly strenuous policies of financial repression by central banks. Um, financial repression operates on two fronts. It is the repression of interest rates, and obviously specifically now not only nominal interest rates, but clearly uh, real interest rates as inflation races ahead. But the second aspect is the suppression of debt default. And this gets um, less coverage. And indeed, many financial institutions continue to price really quite poor credits, quite poor issuers of debt, um, as if they were elite borrowers in the system. Now, that's all changing. Um, financial repression is alive and well, but obviously, the interest rate environment has started to change. So what I'm thinking about in terms of a cost of credit crisis is it's not merely what central banks might be able to achieve in terms of their policy interest rates. What I'm talking about is, if you like, the many dimensions of what is happening. The private credit markets are normalizing rapidly after the extraordinary sort of remission and forbearance associated with the COVID period. And so what's happening now is that repayment holidays are coming to an end, uh, forbearance is coming to an end, there are demands for deferred interest costs to, to be caught up. And of course, uh, a number of loan products are repricing. Um, it's been fairly modest uh, so far, so a floating rate mortgage at the start of the year was about 2.3. It's now about 2.7. And corporate new loans were around, costing around 2% in January, and they're now nearly 3%. But this is just the beginning. Basically, we've been through a long period where default risk has not been adequately priced. And, and so, the, so as we return to a more regular situation, then the cost of credit has to reflect default risk to a much greater extent. But obviously, unfortunately, the economy is weakening, uh, and I think particularly the consumer economy. So if you like, the, the catching up of credit costs to the realistic pricing of default is chasing uh, a deteriorating economic scenario where the, the, the rate of default will, will rise. So, there's other dimensions, but I think that that's a kind of an introduction of, to, to why I'm so concerned about the cost of credit. So, so given this impending credit crunch, when we think about fiscal policy, have we entered an era of bigger government and stagnant living standards? How permanent this, if you like, new settlement is. But I think what the pandemic has, has done I think it, it has created a stronger instinct 
for looking for government protection, and that's sort of physical protection in terms of um, security, uh, military protection, financial protection uh, against adversity, and strategic protection against rising food and, and energy costs. So I think there is increasing political support for a larger state to fulfill more of that protective mandate. But obviously the other aspect of the, um, the pandemic was uh, really the quality of healthcare that was provided to those suffering from COVID really elevated expectations of what the health service should be doing. And obviously there's the whole situation with social care and, and how uh, that needed to be better resourced. So I think from a number of angles, it's easy to see how the state is going to wind up being somewhat like three to five percentage points larger than it was five years ago. The cost of living crisis is not only a UK phenomenon. What are your latest global heat maps revealing about the inflationary pressures in other countries? Yes, the situation is very fluid, but at the moment I see the US and the UK both heading for 10% inflation uh, before the year is out and looking at the dynamics uh, of the price indices, I would say that Germany, Italy, Spain, Belgium, Austria, Finland, Greece, Slovakia, all those countries are also heading for double-digit inflation. We've got a number of countries, obviously, that are already there. We've got Netherlands and Czech Republic, uh, Russia, Poland, Bulgaria, and Turkey. And then in Latin America, we've got Brazil and Argentina. I'm not going to mention Venezuela. And then um, other countries like Pakistan, Nigeria, and Egypt. So basically, double-digit inflation is uh, already quite visible around the world, and many more large countries look to be heading in the same direction. And I would mention especially food price inflation, it seems to me, is going to be a much more worrying aspect um, over the coming year than we might ever have imagined. I, I, I think the struggle to, to plant uh, crops to replace those that we won't be able to access from Ukraine and and possibly Russia as well. I think it, it's likely that we won't we won't succeed in replacing that output. So, with inflation having become untethered, when it comes to controlling inflation, are central banks no more than paper tigers? Yes, I I've written a blog in the context of the Fed about the paper tiger Fed. Obviously, the, the, the Fed has made some very loud noises about the speed and extent to which it intends interest rates to rise to confront arguably one, one of the most um, serious um, inflationary lapses in the last 60 years. But the problem here is that the government has got in there first. So whilst central banks have every pretext to tighten by raising interest rates and by shrinking their balance sheets, the problem is that there is this massive fiscal contraction 
um, resulting from the suspension of the direct um, payments and all the tax credits that were offered to smooth out the COVID experience. And so at the moment, we're looking in America at uh, transfer payments from the government being $2 trillion less than they were year on year and tax payments being £400 billion larger. And I think we're only just uh, beginning to see the impact of this massive fiscal tightening. So the question really is, when that fiscal tightening is front and center in, in, in people's minds and, uh, and spending habits, whether the monetary policymakers really will have the moral authority to add their tightening to the picture as well. So what are the main implications for the financial markets of the cost of living crisis, both in the short term and in the longer term? In the short term, the problem that inflation presents is that it has reliably been associated with a derating of equities in the past. So basically, once once you move from the three to five percent range to the five to ten percent range of inflation, you should expect the PE ratio to fall by twenty or thirty percent. Uh, so in a sense, that that is the the front and center threat now to to equity markets, and it's quite possible that this adjustment could be quite abrupt. So it doesn't mean to say that equities couldn't um, be restored to a position of of more accessible valuation, certainly within a year. But I think uh, obviously that was conditional on on a sharp setback, which which obviously looks. Um, quite possibly as if it has already begun. So the question mark will be whether whether this is any good for bonds or or whether the inflation uh, outlook as it as it would have done in the past uh, just continues to undermine confidence in the bond market as well and see us push into higher ranges of of bond yields. But my guess is that there will be some point at which the Fed moderates its language about uh, interest rate rises and quite possibly suspends them altogether. Uh, and that juncture clearly could be seen as a very a very positive one for fixed income markets, particularly perhaps in the, the middle part of, of the curve where, where it, is, it is priced in all these increases. But if we're, if we're thinking a bit further ahead, then I see financial markets as really having a multi-year struggle and uh, i've talked about the the tottering 20s that basically the investment strategy is trying to solve a multi-dimensional problem this big picture macro monetary regime change which i believe that we're still uh, churning through there's the whole deglobalization balkanization of supply chains uh, and, and of international uh, lending and borrowing there's this prioritization of safety and security I've already mentioned. But there's also, I think, an interesting theme, which is what I call tangible premium versus virtual discount. Um, we're starting to see commodities recover in relation to um, the, the S&P 500 and other, other financial stock indices after a very long period of decline. And we're also starting to see core 
goods prices rising relative to core service prices as well, again, after a very long um, secular decline. So I think that there's some interesting themes to pick up um, around uh, sort of tangible versus virtual. And finally, there's the big context of intergenerational wealth and income dynamics, which arguably, uh, if we are going to see a more protracted period of elevated inflation, then I think that this will, it will transform the relative financial positions of the young and the retired, and obviously favoring, favoring the young at the expense of the retired. So obviously putting those five dimensions together into a coherent strategy, uh, I think is a formidable challenge. But I, I think the, the overall expectation is that the next five years will be about wealth preservation rather than wealth accumulation. Peter, thank you for this very interesting insight into the service that is provided by Economic Perspectives. With more time, it would be interesting to discuss in more detail your views on the longer-term strategy issues that the world faces in the current decade. The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the Economic Perspectives Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available on request from the Independent Research Forum. Many thanks for listening to this IRF podcast with Peter Warburton of Economic Perspectives.